Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. So welcome to the Water Women Podcast, Hannah. I'm super excited to have you on today. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Let's hear a little bit about you. So who are you? What do you do? Give us a little introduction to yourself. Sure. Um, My name is Hannah and I am Swedish, but uh, I have been living uh, in various countries for the last 10 years. And uh, for the past five years, I've been living in Scotland where I've been uh, going to uni for my undergraduate in zoology and my master's in quantitative methods for biodiversity and conservation. So those are some big words for your master's. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're actually studying with that? Yes. So it's very focused on coding in R specifically and statistics. So we've been modeling a lot of population trends and we have been learning how to program in R and just essentially how to use statistics specifically for biodiversity questions and conservation. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Another one of those science things that is like big words to explain something that is not that difficult to understand. Classic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So how did you, did you always know you wanted to study biology or marine things or zoology? Like, did you always know that's what you wanted to study? Or is this something that you found a little bit later on in life? Like, how did you find out? Or when did you know this is something that you wanted to study or pursue? Yeah, I did not know I wanted to do this when I was in school. I did not even pick biology. I always chose like social sciences and sports. But then when I was 20, back in 2011, I decided to go to Australia and travel there. And I got a job uh, on a tall ship. And that's when I started to really see nature I guess and especially the ocean and everything about the ocean and it was one of the most amazing things I've ever done and yeah I yeah it's it's funny to talk about because I had no background in this at all until I started traveling really yeah (laughs) So, so what was this experience on a tall ship what were you doing there Yes, I worked as a a deckhand, and that's essentially, well, the lowest rank on a ship. And I was just traveling in Australia, and I loved it so much, and I decided to stay longer than I'd planned. And then I got a job on this ship in Sydney, and we did harbor sails. So we took people out into the harbor and trying to get them to set sail and things like that. And I started to just fall in love with you know, the work about setting sail and climbing the 20 meter tall mast to work on the sails. And it was so different from any job I'd ever had before. Um, And then four months into that job, the owners told us that they were planning a seven month voyage of the South Pacific Ocean. And I, I was offered a position. So first of all I wasn't going to take it because I had my plan I was going to go to New Zealand like but then another girl who really wanted to go but she wasn't offered it because she hadn't been there for as long as me 
uh, she told me like Hannah you have to take this opportunity <laughs> like you have to go um, so I went and we sailed from Sydney in Australia to New Zealand and then on to the Cook Islands, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, Vanuatu and New Caledonia before we went back to Sydney and it was one of the most wow amazing things I've ever done but also one of the most terrifying things I've ever done in my whole life (laughs) I can imagine that must have been absolutely insane like when you say that you're like oh yeah I went to like I went from Sydney to New Zealand to all these different places like in my head it's like oh yeah she just like there 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 day after day but there's got to be those days where you're just sailing and just on the water and just surrounded by water which would be so insane yeah, the longest one at sea was 18 days. 18 days. That was between New Zealand and the Cook Islands. That was the longest distance between the countries. Yeah. So what would you guys do? Like, what did your days look like on there? when? Because you weren't just obviously sitting there. What would you guys be doing? Yeah, so when you work on the ship, you are um, divided into watches. So depending on what system the ship uses, you're in specific times. So on this ship, we were, there's a watch between 12 and 4, 4 and 8, and 8 and 12. So if you're on the 4 till 8, for example, you're on from 4 p.m. in the afternoon till 8 p.m. And then you're on at 4 a.m. till 8 a.m. And you just, during those times, you just do all the tasks that needs to be done. And essentially, you're just the people who are awake looking after the ship. And you just follow the commands from your officer on the watch. So, for example, there might be a sail that needs trimming because the wind might have changed or you need to change the course you're on uh, with the steering. You need someone at the front of the ship in the bow looking out for any obstacles in the water, such as other ships or cargo you know, things just floating around that could actually hurt the ship and you're doing safety rounds, you're climbing the mast if you need to take a sail in. Yeah, you're just doing all these tasks. When you're out at sea, there's always someone looking after the ship. Yeah, so yeah, you're always doing something. And when you're not on watch, you're either sleeping or eating. That's it. (laughs) That must have been so cool, though, just to be like surrounded by the ocean and just get to like, it would almost be overwhelming at some points. It must have been like just uh, it's a this great therapist. huge, vast thing. Yeah, I can imagine. Holy smokes, I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I feel very lucky to have been able to do this. And I fell in love with it so much that I, I've sailed on other ships now too. And not just the Surin Larsen was the name of the ship. Um, and I've continued sailing on other ships as well, which has been absolutely fantastic. So did you have previous experience sailing before you started these deckhand jobs or did you learn through these jobs? You didn't. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, my dad had a sailing boat when I was a kid. So I've been on boats, but I've never had to, you know, work on the ropes or set sail or anything. So I guess I had a bit of a learning time. Well, I was learning when we were in the harbor for those four months, but nothing prepared me for being at sea like properly like this so yeah I didn't have any qualifications but there were people who did on the boat so I was um, yeah (laughs) so not all the deckhands had a qualification but 
they were enough people who had the qualifications, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. Was, so you yeah. just got to kind of spend your time learning and developing yeah, I, these skills. Yeah, I was a, a volunteer to start with. And then when I'd been on for maybe five months, I went into a paid role. Wow, that is awesome. Yeah. Was it a difficult learning curve? Like, was it hard to, obviously sailing's hard and difficult and physically demanding, um, but you, you fell into your spot quite easy and you figured it out on the way? Yeah, I guess that's what happened. In the beginning, it was scary. The second day into the, the voyage, we, we sailed into a storm and we were so shocked because many of us had never been to sea like this before, like crossing an ocean over to New Zealand. So we sailed into the storm that had like four meter high waves and the winds tore our sails and it was just chaos. We almost lost a crew member overboard. It, it was, oh my goodness. it was intense. It was intense. Yeah. And that left me scared. But then about five months in, we had another storm, but at this time I was more confident and I, you know, I knew my strength. I, I had faith, like I had confidence in myself. I knew I was strong to climb the mast. I knew so much more about the sailing in general that that just left me more euphoric. And we didn't need to wake up the rest of the crew. It was just me and my um, my crewmate on. And we were just handling the sails by ourselves in this storm and there was this one point where I felt like I was in a movie because I was standing at the back of the ship staring and all of a sudden this wave just dumped on me from behind like you know in a movie when they're just like standing there and I was like this is crazy (laughs) that's insane and you were just like in that short of a period of time from the first storm to the second storm you were just like or not maybe short but like in the time difference between the first storm and the second storm, you just gained so much confidence in what you were doing that you were like, oh, this is like, like, think about if that had happened in the first storm, you would have like lost your mind. But the yeah. second storm, you're like, oh, that's kind of wild. It's cool. <laughs> like, yeah, like I became so euphoric. I couldn't sleep afterwards. I think I was on the 12 till 4. So at 4 a.m. in the morning, I needed to go to bed and I just couldn't sleep because I was, I was so like, I had so much energy because it was such a, thrilling experience that time around yeah yeah (laughs) that is so cool yeah I I I love it I love sailing you would you would get to spend so much time just with the oceans and like the sights you would see and just like the feeling like I know my feelings being on water sometimes I'm like wow I am so small I am so insignificant this ocean could eat me up and no one would ever know so it must like you said a great therapist like it must just be like grounding almost which is ironic considering it's you know you're on water and not ground but you know yeah yeah absolutely I I learned the power of the ocean I have such respect for the ocean and what it can actually do and uh, I love that yeah I when you sit on the bow like you know when you're on the bow watch and you look out for any obstacles in the water you're just looking out on onto the horizon and you're just contemplating life and you have no cell phone reception so no one's on their phones you're just hanging out and doing the work together teamwork you know and it's really cool and there's people of all ages all nationalities you're all working together and it's just really beautiful I think 
Oh yeah, it sounds it. And you must get to see some amazing sights and amazing wildlife and just get to see that and enjoy that. Did you have any really cool experiences with that kind of stuff? Yeah. So like I said, before I went to Australia, I never, I didn't know much about the environment or nature or animals really. So when I went on that voyage, we had daily encounters with wildlife, with marine animals and like flying fish would just land on the boat and albatrosses and dolphins and pilot whales. That was the, I I didn't even know they existed, pilot whales, when I saw them the first time. I'm like, what is that? It's really cool. (laughs) So yeah, I, I started learning a lot about different animals and weather also. The you know, some days it was just pouring rain and it was horrible at that time. But afterwards, there was always a rainbow like that stretched across the sky from horizon to horizon. And like, yeah, sometimes just the starry sky out at sea with no pollution at all. It was just so amazing to see. Oh, that would be just oh I'm so jealous I are they hiring because I'll go I'll do it oh they're probably they're still going in the harbor you can probably go and join yeah perfect perfect so after you finished working there what did you pursue you when you came back to Sydney what did you do well I decided that I wanted to work in the marine industry but I kind of wanted to move on to something uh, different so I really wanted to get a job on a whale watching boat because I'd seen these amazing animals in the wild and I wanted to take other people out to see them, but I also really wanted to encourage people to go and see animals in the wild and not in a zoo. Um, So I decided to, I got in contact with a company and I did my courses. So after about a month after we came back, I got a new job as a deckhand on a whale watching boat. And they were still okay. going. So we went out through Sydney. So just just out through the Sydney heads that leads into the harbour. And that's usually where the companies go to find whales, to watch the whales. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So how long did you do that for? I did that for six months. Um, yes, six months. Nice. And did you enjoy it? Was it something that you really liked? Or did you have like reservations about it? Uh, very mixed feelings, to be completely honest. Um, I had that initial idea of wanting to take people away from zoos. And yeah, but then when we were out there, I started to notice that this was, you know, yet another thing for companies to earn money on. And I started to realize that many companies were not following the guidelines of how to act around humpback whales. Um there are specific guidelines you need to follow. You know, for example, you need to keep a specific distance. And that is different if it's a male or a female with a calf. And there's only three boats allowed following the whale, for example. So if you're a fourth boat, you need to wait your turn. Um, you're not allowed to cut off their path or anything. Um, but there were just many companies that were not following those rules and guidelines and especially private boats were not I just don't think people know when you go on a private boat that there might be guidelines around these animals oh absolutely so I have previously worked on a whale watching boat and I know exactly what you're talking about especially like with the pleasure crafts and private boats because it's like you're out there and a lot of 
I will say the whale companies around here do a fantastic job of maintaining the distance and keeping everything and everyone safe. Yeah. Uh, but the pleasure crafts will like hop onto the radio and like find out where we are or follow us out. And you're like watching them. You're like, why are you sitting directly over top of this whale? Like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? And like, they just have like no regard for the safety and you want to be mad about it. But then it's also like, a well, they don't know. Like, yeah, exactly. There's just like this huge animal that they're so excited to see so they're like oh yeah let's like get as close to it as we can and so it's really important I think to educate people on proper ways to interact with these animals yeah I completely agree of course there were the companies that did do the right thing that didn't go too close and things like that but there were just too many companies I think from what I've seen now who just don't follow the guidelines oh yeah no I totally understand what you're saying and it's it's so hard to see because you're like yeah, these are awesome animals and I'd rather observe them in their home than in a tank, but also I want them to be comfortable enough to come here and enjoy their time here and not feel like they're being harassed. Exactly. Like we're essentially disrupting the, their migration path in a way, you know, this, they're, they're migrating up the coast and all of a sudden there's all these boats in this one area. It might I think today we're just we just don't really know how much these things impact these wild populations. It might lead to them moving elsewhere or changing the route. Uh, I don't know to, enough about humpback whales really to know if it can change their route, but I feel like sometimes we just don't we don't know enough yet how much this can actually impact um, yeah, the no, wild populations. Yeah, you're exactly correct there. Hmm. Because that's that's the focus of a lot of studies right now is what is happening with this, like what, how is this affecting them? Yeah, I um, I did an exchange with, uh, during my undergrad at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, and I took a marine mammal biology class over there, and we got to learn a lot about conservation aspects when it comes to cetaceans and. We started, we started to learn a bit like one side of the island, there's a lot of companies that go out there to swim with dolphins. And we got to read a study that they had found that spinner dolphins in this area of Hawaii, they actually partitioned their day. So they would feed and hunt at a specific time. They would rest at a specific time and be social at a specific time. And they go into the base around the island to, to rest during the day. But a large proportion of this time when they're supposed to be resting, humans came there to swim with them with these boats. And they've started to see now that the, the dolphins have started to go elsewhere now. So we've actually started to move them away from their native habitat. So these interactions have such a bigger impact than yeah, then we know. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's so, it's difficult because you obviously want to promote these, like, having great encounters with these animals and getting to see them in the wild because it's easier to care about something and want to protect something that you've seen or that you have gotten to interact with. But it's also like, but don't harass them and, like, there's proper ways to go about interacting with these animals and you're not always going to get that movie-like interaction where you're 
a foot away from the dolphin or the whale and they're jumping and uh, sometimes you're just going to see them and that should be enough for you. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like nowadays I feel a bit like humans, we're just seeking all these exotic interactions with animals. Like we actively go to seek them. And I don't know, I think sometimes that that might be a bit dangerous for the wild populations, but also for us. Mm. Yeah, but like you say, it's you want to take people out there. You want to get them engaged. You want to get them to care about these wild animals to maybe make changes in their lives and things like that. So it's a very hard balance to find, I think, between doing damage and actually doing something good. Yes, no, I know exactly what you mean. exchange and you were telling me that you got to work with the uh like you uh, volunteered as a field assistant with some sea turtle protection and stuff that was that sounds really cool do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so the sea turtle project was in Greece actually and that was with an organization called Archelon and they work for the conservation of the loggerhead sea turtle uh, on the Greek beaches cool Yeah, I got to do that just after I finished my first year of my uh, undergraduate, um, so my zoology degree. Um, And it was just really cool to go out into the field and do some proper work with real animals. We, um, you camp on the beach, so not on the beach, you camp in a camp, (laughs) just off the beach. And then you would go out really early in the morning and look for turtle tracks and turtle nests and if you found one you need to follow the tracks and find the nest because you needed to dig up the eggs and count them and then put them back so the reason they do this is because the loggerhead sea turtle is endangered in this area um so they have to you need to find the nest and then protect it so in this part of greece you would um, put a metal grid on top of it and then hammer in some uh, sticks to keep it safe from predators and show humans that there is a nest here so that they won't go too close. Okay, yeah. That's awesome. Do you guys have like education outreach or something for the community that they know what these like markers mean? Or is it kind of a signs up around it? Just something so people know where or like what they're seeing rather than be curious about it? Or is that coming? Yeah, no, there is. Um, the, the organization have information booths like in the main town in this area to inform tourists and things like that. And we also go to hotels and give some presentations to tourists just to make them aware of the situation. And for example, if you're at a hotel at this beach, just be aware that there are turtles here and that you shouldn't walk on the beach late at night with lights, for example, because there might be a turtle there who's trying to lay their eggs. And yeah, just making people aware that this is a turtle nesting beach and a very important one. It's really important to have that outreach and education because otherwise, like, you know, you might get people walking on the beach that are kind of like, oh, what's this? And cause more damage than they would have if they didn't even know the nest was there kind of thing. So it's awesome that there's that education and outreach. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed working for them. So I, I, I definitely vouch for them if anyone want to go and volunteer 
triathlon, I it was a great experience, great field work <laughs> experience, and they do really good work. They've actually seen uh, more turtles coming back now since they started the project um, over 10 years ago, maybe at least 20 years ago, they started this work and they're now seeing the rewards. Like we started to see uh, turtles now, more turtles coming back to these beaches because turtles go back to nest on the beach where, where they were born. So the more turtles we save from these beaches, the more are going to come back and then lay their eggs there. That's awesome. It's awesome that they're seeing that now too. Yes. It's definitely make definitely makes you, you know, feel like we're doing something here and it's working. It makes it it makes it feel worth it almost. Yes, yes. Gives you that satisfaction, yeah. You did your, uh, in school, you did a semester in Hawaii. That is so cool. Yeah, it was very amazing. Did you, <laughs> what did, what, what made you want to do that? And uh, what did you do while you were there? We've kind of talked about this a bit, but, you know, just talk about it a bit more. Yeah, well, after I'd been in Australia, I, I stayed away from, well, stayed away. I was away from Sweden for three years. And when I came back, I realized that I just... I didn't feel like the adventure, I didn't want the adventure to be over. So I went to Scotland and then I realized that I can do a semester abroad there. So I wanted to go to a place that had a very different nature to home, to Sweden or to Scotland, for example. And I wanted to experience a different climate, different flora and fauna, and just a different environment to learn new things in. And I saw that Hawaii, that my school had an exchange with Hawaii and yeah, I applied and I got to take courses in marine mammal biology and oceanography and uh, tropic island ecology. Um, and those were our topics that I'm very, very interested in. So I'm very happy that I got to go. Um, and yeah, when I was there, I, yeah, I took those uh, classes and Actually, in the marine mammal um, course, the field work or the lab work for this course was to actually go out on, on a vessel in the harbor or at sea and photograph humpback whales for a photo ID project. So, yeah, it was, it was just amazing that a university could have that as a lab because in Scotland, I'd only done labs in, in the lab or I'd been out, you know, on campus collecting yeah. something from a transect because I was learning about that type of data collection method. But here I got to go on a boat and photograph whales. <laughs> Very different. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I got to learn about photo ID and how you use that for humpback whales. And I got to do some other projects for the Tropical Island Ecology course um, that, you know, we got to develop our own projects with other, other students and then present our findings. And it's a very, very good experience and very good for my, for my future and for my CV, I guess, with all these experiences with research. Oh, absolutely. Um, did that kind of make you want to pursue the statistics a little bit more? Is that how you kind of got into that? Or where did you come up with this whole, like your master's in statistics and like quantitative methods? How did you kind of get there? What brought you to that from your all your time with the ocean and falling in love with it like that? Yeah, well, this the crazy thing is I had to take a stats course in my undergrad that was uh, mandatory. And I just fell in love with it. I, I've never 
I remember doing statistics in school, like when I was young in Sweden, and I did not like it at all. <laughs> and this time around, I really fell for it. And so that was in my second year. And then the first semester of my third year, I enrolled to take a more advanced course where we start to code in R. And I started to learn how to code. And then just the, the semester after that, I went to Hawaii and I got to do some projects there where I got to apply the knowledge that I just learned in this statistics course and the coding. And I could use that coding in my some of the projects in Hawaii. And I think I started to just see how you can apply statistics and coding to your data and to your projects. And really, I got to see how you actually do it in a real like research setting. Um, That's really interesting. That's super cool. Yeah. So that just started to get me really just more excited about it. Just And then I, I did my undergraduate thesis and I used R for that as well. And I just started to really really enjoyed analyzing data. And then my supervisor for my thesis, he suggested this degree at Glasgow University, the quantitative one. Um, and I looked it up and it looked really, really interesting. So yeah, that's that that's what happened, really. I <laughs> I I just took that cool. one course, fell for it, took another one, and just I just kept going. <laughs> I love that. I cannot relate at all because uh, R makes me want to cry quite often. <laughs> uh, it is quite possibly the bane of my existence. Uh, but I suffer through because I love these animals, but uh, yeah. it is my I hate it. So I will be calling you for lots of questions. I'm oh, sure. go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I'm actually starting my own tutoring service <laughs> where I'm actually That's tutoring amazing. R and statistics. So come along if you want to. <laughs> That is amazing. I will be there. Oh, yeah. So what's your plan after? What do you hope to do with this master's that you've just or that you're working on? And like, where do you hope it takes you? Well, I, I just actually submitted my thesis. So I'm actually done with the degree. Oh my uh, yeah. goodness, that's so exciting. Congratulations. I haven't graduated officially, but I'm done with the degree. But still, you're done. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, well, I, I now actually call myself a quantitative ecologist. I have identified that I want to work with the data, with data analysis. Uh, I would love to be a statistician or a data analyst <laughs> uh, or ecologist or GIS officer. I want to work with spatial data if I can, if there's any opportunities with that, but specifically with marine data, such as movement of cetaceans, for example. I love spatial ecology. I love that. That's awesome. So hopefully you found something with that. And you, your Instagram account, let's chat about that for a second, because it is so cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I love your Instagram. What kind of persuaded you or led you to do that and kind of use it as the platform that you do use it as I think I just wanted to share my knowledge and share my experiences that I have been very privileged to have had and very grateful for um I think I just wanted to share them and I I, I had I feel like as as humans nowadays we're so disconnected to nature and with nature and I kind of just want to bring nature back to people yeah. um, so I try and share about population trends is one of the things I'm very interested in and in seeing how population sizes change over time and 
the reasons for those changes and sharing that with people such as, you know, habitat degradation or poaching and things like that. I'm very interested in those environmental issues that affect wild populations. That is awesome. Well, you do a great job sharing information and making it a very digestible and easily understandable Thank you. Uh, in a very visually uh, pleasing way too. So I highly recommend everyone following out uh, or following you on Instagram. And speaking of that, do you want to tell people if people want to follow along with you and whatever you're doing, where can they find you on any social medias? Currently, uh, it is Sustainable Biologist on Instagram. That's my main, currently that's the only one I have, like only social media platform at the moment. (laughs) So Sustainable Biologist. Great. So make sure you check her out and uh, follow along with that and gain some new knowledge because it is awesome. And like I said, very visually pleasing and just very fun to follow. You will always learn something new, which is really fun. Thank you. And Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. It was awesome to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe to it. You can also follow us on all of our social medias. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also find more behind the scenes info on our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca. I am so happy to keep sharing these stories of different water women each week with you. And until next week, stay salty.